Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health. I'm Elizabeth Cullen. And I'm Georgia Fong. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. All information in the podcast Integrating Chinese Medicine with the Dow Health is for educational purposes only and was relevant at the time of recording. We recommend for any individual symptoms, personalised diagnosis and treatment to see a registered health practitioner. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to episode 13. Today we have the pleasure to speak to Dr. Natasha Andriadis. Dr. Andriadis is a qualified and experienced gynecologist and fertility specialist. She works primarily in IVF and fertility care, gynecology, hormone health, and hysteroscopic surgical procedures. She is a certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility CREI subspecialist making her uniquely qualified to manage infertility and hormonal issues. Her integrative approach means she looks into impact of nutrition, lifestyle and environment on reproductive health. She works with complementary health practitioners such as dietitians, naturopaths, acupuncturists and Chinese medicine practitioners to provide well-rounded care for her patients. Dr. Andriadis is a qualified integrative nutrition health coach whereby she helps patients make sustained positive lifestyle changes to enhance their reproductive health. She prescribes weight loss medications in in conjunction with offering lifestyle advice and support. In 2000, Dr. Andriatis graduated from medicine at the University of New South Wales. After many years of further study and practice, she became a fellow of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, otherwise known as RANSCOG. Prior to this, she underwent generalist training in obstetrics and gynaecology at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, Sydney. In 2008, she won the RANSCOG Award for the highest mark in the Oral M RANSCOG exam. And in her final year of subspecialty training, she was a research fellow at Oxford United Kingdom and Utrecht, the Netherlands. She holds a master's degree in human reproduction and genetics from the University of Sydney. Natasha is committed to sharing her knowledge, which she fulfills by teaching as a clinical lecturer at the University of Sydney Central Medical School. She has an informative women's health and fertility podcast channel, The Fanny Mechanic, and a YouTube channel, Dr. Tash TV, providing patients with her informative and entertaining video blogs. Her current research interests are in music therapy, where she and researchers at USW are looking at how music can help reduce anxiety-related gynecological and fertility procedures. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Beautiful, here we go. Beautiful. So, hi, Dr. Tash. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, ladies, for having me. Thank you for being on. So, working in the fertility space, 
Referring to a reproductive specialist or gynecologist is not uncommon for us as practitioners. Mm -hmm. As Chinese medicine practitioners, we promote holistic care. However, we rarely come across a specialist who is open to and also promotes allied health. So today, Tash, as a specialist who supports the benefits of holistic care and an integrative approach to health, we wanted to get your expertise on how you believe patients can best prepare for reproductive support, including IVF and egg vitrification. So we wanted to start with discussing the importance of preconception care for IVF. We wanted to know what you believe is important um, in terms of preconception care going into an IVF cycle. Yeah, look, I mean, preconception care is everything. It's about um, optimizing uh, sperm and egg health um, for conception. Uh, and and it, it shouldn't be just two or three months. It should be a good 12 months, I feel. Um, I did an interesting podcast with Jennifer Ward, who's a naturopath I refer a lot to. And um, she talks about how when she was trying to conceive, she actually prepared for conception 12 months out from her pregnancy. Okay. Uh, had a straightforward pregnancy. And that was her, you know, reviewing her and her partner's diet, their weight, their exercise, their alcohol intake, um, you know, optimizing their environment. So she talks a lot about uh, chemical exposures and looking at the chemicals that you're exposing yourself to, both in, you know, in what you're eating and what you're applying to your skin. Um, but preconception care is also about optimizing medications and supplements. So, for example, there are some medications that people um, take that are not suitable for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so preconception care is about looking at uh, the whole person, you know, are, are, are their medications appropriate or not? And, and having an, an opportunity to um, change those up. So, for example, some antidepressants or antipsychotics um, that a lot of people are on would not be um, that safe for in pregnancy. So... Um, and even, you know, cholesterol medications, for example, are generally not recommended um, in pregnancy. So it's really important preconception care. And I don't think people can really spend too much time on it, really. Um, and it's disappointing when you see people who, um, you know, don't want to spend enough time on it and rush straight into IVF. Yeah, so a yeah. lot of the time I actually... Um, I, I actually recommend patients don't actually actively try to conceive um, even naturally until their uh, preconception care is really tidied up. So if they're smokers, I say to them, do not be smoking if you're trying to conceive. Don't try to conceive for a minimum of three to four months before um, you've stopped the smoking. And that often surprises people. Uh, and they often get a bit disappointed with me because I'm not going to put them through an IVF cycle and they might go to another IVF provider who'll put them through it straight away, but that's just not the way I practice. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the other thing is I also find that women, and again, this astounds me, they, they really don't know much about their ovulation and their menstrual cycles. They really don't know anything about it until they start trying and again I think part of preconception care is about women and men familiarizing themselves with the menstrual cycle you know what the phase of the menstrual cycle are what ovulation is what the, what the luteal phase is mm -hmm. um, so and it's equally important for men and women you know weight is a big issue in our society you know and, and I tend to see people who are more obese or overweight rather than the underweight but even underweight uh, women uh, really need a lot of attention in the preconception period, uh, mm. again, to optimise their, their general health uh, for conception. So, um, yeah, it, it's a big area. And I have to say, 
as a fertility practitioner, I do like to spend time um, looking at preconception care. Uh, my, I love it when a couple come and see me um, and they're, they're actually not ready for baby making, but they want to prepare themselves for that. So they'll come and see me purely for preconception care. And um, I love uh, consults like that. And um, yeah, they're, they're some the of my favorites. That's the ideal situation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess um, when, you know, we see clinically a lot is that there is that sense of urgency and trying to encourage that preconception care and that window of time that to allow themselves to get to know their bodies and, you know, to support and really prepare them for conceiving is ideal. But when do you find that time is of the essence for patients to go straight into IVF? It's usually their age. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's age. Yeah. So for women's over 38, you know, time is of the essence there. Um, I do see a yeah. lot of women who are over 40. Yeah. But yeah. still, you know, they, they can still afford three to four months out minimum to, to, yeah. to undergo preconception care. So um, you say that you could still, you've still got that three to four months of time to really get them prepared? Well, I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. An egg, an egg count's not going to drop off dramatically within three to four months, I, I think. That's, that's very different to three or four years. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, we see a lot, Tash, in clinic when, you know, an AMH level has come back very low and there is that panic that's been put in to mm. the patient from um, their fertility doctor. And it's one of those things where they don't think that they have that window of time for the three to four months to really help themselves to prepare best for the egg retrieval and IVF and knowing that is really yeah. peace of mind yeah well. definitely and be able to suggest that yeah, yeah. better clinical outcomes yeah so, yeah yeah a amh is a massive headache though i'm not sure if you've heard the acronym for that AMH. <laughs> potentially i mean it, it can be a very useful test and it is a useful test but yeah. uh, it does cause a lot of panic and stress in women who do that you find that it's a useful test for everyone um because you'll always find something to do with it as a clinician yeah yeah uh, particularly it's more useful for uh when i'm planning an ivf cycle um yeah. determining the dose of medication to put women on yeah that's yeah. when it's, that's when it's most useful yeah yeah are you using amh levels as a test for all women who are coming in who are wanting to conceive look yes i mean you'd be hard pressed to find a fertility specialist that doesn't do that that's a very standard test now the amh yeah yeah definitely but do you find that you are saying when say results may come back low or they've fluctuated depending on where they take the test in their hormonal cycle that you are giving them peace of mind that it's not everything that amh test uh, it's not everything absolutely yeah but it is part of the important part of the picture yeah definitely yeah yeah definitely so when we coming back to ivf and ivf cycles and couples um wanting to go down the route of ivf Tash, Dr. Tash, what um, factors would you consider um, for who would be appropriate to go for IVF? Um, you know, couples, it, it, it's a very individual thing. It's a very couple-based thing, but sometimes it's very obvious that the couple need IVF. For example, if the women's fallopian tubes are blocked or if he's got a very low sperm count, they're two very kind of, uh, uh, you know, obvious reasons to move to IVF treatment. Um, if you're doing partner IVF as part of um, same-sex couple um, treatment, that's also uh, quite appropriate. Um, 
yeah, so sometimes it's very obvious. And a lot of the time it's 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 an option that we that we couples have. It's not always must go to IVF. Um, I always like to give people the option of trying kind of softer treatments first that may still be very effective. Um, people have it in their mind that IVF is always the last resort when it's not. Um, you can try a cycle of IVF or two. And then if you didn't fall pregnant or didn't like doing IVF, then you can always try other things potentially um, depending on the situation. Yeah, right. Okay. So like say, for example, medications that assist ovulation like letrozole or Clomid, is that something that you, for example, may go to IVF first depending on the couple? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, some some couples want to go straight to IVF um, yeah. for whatever reason. But if there is an issue with ovulation uh, and uh, depending on the woman's age, you may want to just try a few cycles of letrozole. Yeah. Um, it also depends on the sperm quality and what the sperm's doing because if you've got a very low sperm count, then you may need to go straight to IVF despite her um, maybe her ability and, and want to go through an, a letrozole cycle. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the good thing about IVF as well is that it is also quite a diagnostic tool, not just a therapeutic tool. So it's a good way of finding out if, if egg and sperm, um, you know, what they look like in the lab, but also importantly, what embryos these couple, the couple are making. Because yeah. if they're making crappy embryos, then um, you know maybe why it's not working, why they're not pregnant. Uh, so IVF, especially the first round of IVF, I find is quite um, interesting. And um, it tells you a little uh, bit more of what's going to happen from an embryo. Well, it, it tells us, tells us why perhaps they haven't conceived naturally. And um, sometimes you do have to change things up for the second cycle. Mm. Okay. Uh, so it's quite an informative process. And of course, there are the uh, benefits of creating embryos and freezing embryos for use later on. Yeah. Um, so if an embryo is frozen at 34, it will ever forever be an embryo that's frozen for a 34-year-old. So that woman, when she turns 40, could still use that embryo if it's frozen at 34 and her chances of success are that of a 34-year-old woman, not that of a 40-year-old woman. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very it's a very useful, effective tool, IVF, but of course it's not 100%. And some people are surprised that it's not 100% in terms mm. of its success rates. Yeah, um, yeah. And of course, that always goes back to female age and male age, but predominantly female age is the success of IVF. Yeah. Uh, and if you're over 40, it just is so much harder. Yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of back-to-back -back IVF cycles, what would your opinion be on how many you should do before you would take a break? It again depends on how the patient feels, but also maybe their response from the first treatment cycle. Um, so, for example, if they have overstimulated and at a risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and you've had to freeze all embryos, then you are probably not wanting to do another uh, stimulated cycle straight afterwards because it's, it's probably not too safe. And patients need time to rest. Um, their bodies need to rest. Their minds need to rest. Um, you know, so it's, uh, again, it's a very individual thing, but there are some patients where you would just go from one cycle to another with no issues. And that would probably be most patients. But again, it depends on the patient, uh, the age of the patient, their, 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 how they've responded to the, to the previous cycle. Um, and a lot of women do want to break, I find, between stimulated cycles. Yeah. yeah. 
Do you find that there's patients, like when we consider their minds and bodies to rest, do you find that there is patients that you need to suggest to them to have a break so that they can have a rest for a better outcome clinically? May Say, for example, if they have one to three months off IVF and then start again. Yeah, quite a lot of patients yeah. are like that. Um, and it's often patients tell me that they want a bit of a break. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, they're the ones that say, oh, I think I'm just going to have a couple of months break and then I'll, I'll come back. Uh, so it's often driven by the patients, I find. It's not something I generally have to bring up. Yeah, okay. Okay. And do you find that, say, for example, for a patient who you know that there may be a chance of getting embryos that are of a quality to be frozen, will you suggest to them, say, for example, and I know this would be for the individual, but to have a break after the egg retrieval, let their bodies have a rest and then come into a frozen egg transfer? Yes, or they could um, do it straight after the following month. Yeah, okay. Uh, it, depends, it depends on whether or not those embryos are being biopsied for genetic testing because sometimes that takes a good month for the results to come back, mm, in which yeah. case they do have to have a forced break for at least a month. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting clinically, Tash, because we do see patients who do get that time to have a break, that they usually, their outcomes as a whole person are more positive. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting. And generally, generally, um frozen embryo transfer rates tend to be more successful than fresh and better yeah. birth outcomes uh yeah depending on um whether uh, it depends on how you put that embryo back actually because if you put it back as part of a hormone replacement uh, treatment cycle um the outcomes aren't as good from um a pregnancy perspective as if you're to put it back as part of a minimal stimulation for example the corpus luteum if, if you have a corpus luteum on board, you're less likely to have issues with hypertension in pregnancy. Yeah. So women, women, yeah. So oh, it, wow. it depends on okay. how that okay. woman prepared for that frozen embryo transfer cycle. Yeah. So the yeah. medicated cycles are less preferable to a minimal stim um, cycle. Um, you know, you want a corpus luteum if you can. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you want do you want to follow Correct. their natural cycle as much as possible? Yeah. And yeah. clinically, we also find women prefer that as well, following their natural yeah. cycle. Yeah, right. Less yeah. drugs. They feel better with you know, less on, less yeah. on board, yeah. generally less less um monitoring. And so when we talk about ICSI, um, when do you make that decision? Obviously, like there's been a sperm test done for the male partner, but do you find that additional part of the IVF cycle mm -hmm. is something that you may suggest to a couple after a number of IVF cycles that have failed, or is it usually something that you'd be adding straight away? Well, there are there should be clear indications for um, ICSI. Um, so male factor, though, you know, low sperm count, um, low motility, low morphology, if they've got anti-sperm antibodies, issues with ejaculation, if you're using donor sperm, using frozen sperm or eggs, needing to retrieve sperm from testicles, like if they've had a vasectomy. Um, but from the outset, you shouldn't do ICSI, I feel. Um, if they've had an if they've gone, undergone an IVF cycle and they've had failed fertilization, yeah. then in the subsequent cycle you would consider doing ICSI. Okay. Um, sometimes you have to do ICSI if you're doing genetic testing, yeah. uh, like PGD. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes some clinicians what they do is they do half IVF, half ICSI. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Um, which I'm not really a fan of. Why are they doing uh, to see different outcomes with the embryos? Yeah, I think they do it more so when there's no clear male factor. Um, and again, you know, you should really do it for clear male factor because, um, you know, ICSI, it doesn't involve the natural processes that say more IVF would because the scientist has to select a, a sperm um, and they can't see the chromosomes or the genetic abnormalities if that, if that sperm carries that. Whereas when you do IVF, yeah. there's more of a natural selective process. Um, and with, with ICSI, there's, there's more of a chance of birth defects. So one in 14, according to VATA, which is the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Technologies Group, so post, post ICSI, there's a one in 14 chance of birth defects, whereas in the general population, it's one in 25. Um, and you're looking at, you know, different chromosomal abnormalities. You're looking at cardiovascular defects, hyperspadius, which is a urogenital defect, um, cleft lip palate. Uh, so really, I mean, in some clinics in the world, they just do routine ICSI because the fertilization rates are anywhere between 50 to 80 percent and but there is there is about a two percent chance that you destroy uh, an egg if you're doing ICSI and that's why we tend to lot not like doing ICSI too much in women who are over 40 um, because egg quality tends to be poorer and they just take that uh, that intervention too well so you've got to go back to you know um okay why am i doing icsi what, what what what's the reason yeah okay and um so with that icsi side of things as well um uh, i think it was sydney i, I think it was for some studies that came out of sydney uni that were they were saying there was a bit of a pattern that was occurring from males who'd been a icsi embryo who were now at a fertile age that they were having sperm issues well, that's right yeah there was um, yeah, yeah. a big study and showed that yeah yeah so it's and, you know and and perhaps the reason why they needed ICSI in the first place goes back to what what was going on uh in the womb when they were developing as as yeah. babies you know what 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 was the mother's health like yeah. you know was the mother um exposing herself to more chemicals because there's very good evidence now that if she's exposing herself to more um Xenogenic, you know, um, components in in the environment that she's going to um, potentially increase the chances of her baby boy being less fertile. Um, so it all goes back, doesn't it, to the yeah. womb? Yeah, it definitely does. And I guess, Dr. Tash, when a patient's coming to see you for the first time, what is the best way for them to be prepared? for seeing you for their initial appointment and what kind of questions should they be asking their IVF specialist? Well, the one the bit about the questions, there is no stupid question. They can ask any question they want. Um, the important thing is to write all your questions down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, to actually be prepared for the consult, um, to come with all of your results. Yeah. And yeah. to have the results ordered in a, in a kind of a chronological fashion. So, 
um, you know, I think they need they need to be organised and, and and do bring that. And this is what patients do. They bring they bring things in folders, which I'm sure you ladies have uh, are used to. You've probably seen that as well. Yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I, I love it when patients are organised like that because, oh, so good. Yeah. you know, it, my heart does sink when people just bring in a massive pile of papers and there's been there's no order, there's duplicates, there's, there's triplicates, there's you know, it kind of makes my heart sink a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think they've got a. I'd recommend they introduce some feng shui into their, um, you know, <laughs> world. You know, when they first start off on that journey, yeah, because sure. it's makes it easier for everyone. The doctor they're seeing, the secretary that has to go through those results and scan them in, yeah, but also for themselves. Um, yeah, I think asking lots of questions, and you know, I, I try and spend enough time with my patients so that they can have every question answered. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I don't I don't look at my clock and say, okay, now it's 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 you know one o'clock I have the next patient in the waiting room. Mm, yeah. I, I do often run over time and um and 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 that's because I don't look at my clock. Yeah. Yeah. Um but of course I have the leisure of, that, of doing that because that's how I've organized my practice, you know, and mm. other doctors might see more patients in a day. But that goes back to making sure that you have written all your questions down so that that doctor um, has an opportunity to talk to you about everything. And then you patients will always have follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, and that's fine too. We expect that. Um, some patients put follow-up questions in an email to me. Sometimes when there are too many questions, I say, look, like, can, we, can we just talk about this at the follow-up or yeah. um, sometimes it's a matter of yes or no answer. Yeah. Um, I think being organised is yeah, that's a really good one. I love when a patient comes with their medical history timeline. Yeah, me too. For the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Okay, let's go through this and unpack it. So then you can get a really comprehensive yeah. insight yeah. of the patient and their history. Would you recommend a patient, um, say a female is coming to see you, Tash, would you recommend that if her partner's male that he has already had a sperm test done, a sperm analysis? Ideally, yes. That, that does help a lot. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, to start with, I mean, what happens is invariably the sperm test is not usually comprehensive enough for me because yeah, I like to yeah. see um, the anti-sperm antibodies and DNA fragmentation. And I yeah. will usually send them off for another sperm test. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I explain that it's because often those tests have not been done in the first place. But the best thing is to know, does this guy produce sperm? You know, yes. what, what's his count? You know, that's the main thing. Is he making sperm? Yeah, that's yeah. The first. And is, it, is it over 15 million per mil? You know, that stuff is quite important. And with the sperm analysis that a male would get prior to coming to you, he DNA fragmentation testing isn't routine with the GPs. Is that right? Yeah, no, they don't do it. I don't. I don't know why. I'm. I'm really not sure. Um, and it's not really their field, I suppose. Um, there's even contention and discussion between the fertility doctors. I, I know. I have some fertility doctor mates who don't order it at the outset, yeah. um, but I do because I have had instances where patients haven't had it done the first time, and then you do a couple of IVF cycles, yeah. and then suddenly you do it, and then it's it's elevated, which then changes what you should have done in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I like Crazy. information, and and it, it, unfortunately, if it means a bit more for the patient, I I will explain that to them. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't like people having second rate tests 
Um, I don't. And, and so I will usually order ones at spe specific ultrasound, specific sperm tests at certain places. Yes. And uh, yeah. some, some patients don't understand that at the beginning. They're like, why, why couldn't you just send me there? You know, it's bulk build. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's about the quality and the information that. And the more information, needs. the better before you commit to an IVF cycle. Yeah, or even to help, help helpfully understand why you're not conceiving. Yeah, definitely. yeah, that's true. I'm very true. Yeah. So now we wanted to pick your brain a little bit about egg freezing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of egg vitrification, when would a woman um, when do you believe a woman should consider this process? Ideally before the age of 35 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i have to say i i, I uh, in my practice i tend to see women who are between say 30 and 39 who do a lot of egg freezing i don't tend to see women in their 20s doing it much okay. uh some women come when they're over 40 but the majority is between you know 30 to 40 and um the ideal sweet sweet spot really is between 30 to 35 when you look at cost uh, cost uh, cost analysis okay. benefit um, you know, uh, a lot of papers outline that uh, because there is a sweet spot between uh, egg number and egg quality between 30 to 35. Um, yeah, so, and, and again, I'm open to it whenever a patient really wants. So if I've got a 20-year-old, yeah. not 20-year-old, so 25-year-old who, um, I'll give you a case example. So for yesterday, I saw a young girl who's 27 mm -hmm. and uh, she has severe endometriosis, uh, you know, noted on surgery and histopathology confirmed. She has a very low follicle count. It's only six. And um, that's really quite low for her age. Yeah. So I encouraged her to do egg freezing. Yes. Um, she's she's going to think about it. Okay. Um, and I, all I said to her was, listen, as long as you know that this is an option for you, that with time, your egg reserve is only going to decline. Mm. You don't want to turn around at 25 and regret things. Yeah. You know, you want to regret going, oh, I wish I'd done it years ago. Because this is what I often hear. I hear from women, I wish I'd frozen my eggs a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and they know fully well that egg freezing is no 100% guarantee. Mm. Yeah. But you don't want regrets. And it gives you a better um, yeah, mm. and peace of mind as yeah. well for patients who've had their eggs frozen, who've come here and you know they've got chronic endo or they've had amenorrhea, um, and they've got a low egg quality, a low egg count. Um, you do find that they have that peace of mind of knowing that in the future that the eggs are freezing. Mm. Yeah. They're there, and you know it may not be that they may may even need them for their first child, but they yeah. may need them for the second and third as well. So yeah, 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 that's true, exactly. Yeah. And ho hopefully it, it stops some women from making rash decisions about which guys to have babies with. That's yes. true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Because it so. enables them to relax into their, any relationship. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of women who are actually in relationships yeah. and are doing egg freezing Yeah. Um, because they often say, I don't want to put pressure on my partner. Um, I want to do this for me. Yeah. yeah well, I've heard a number of times in here with patients with chronic endo and their specialist has said to them, look, go and find a partner and have a baby. That's, oh, yeah. Oh, God. That's, you know, God. That, yeah, what, um, that's what, what, that's what, the 20th. And not only could you be making <laughs> a choice that may not be the right life choice, it's yeah. like that's not the solution for the endometriosis. It's no. not. That's right. 
And we can buy sperm online these days. It's yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Access is there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So um, when we were touching base on the AMH levels before, Tash, um, yes, we know it can be the anxiety-making hormone, but how can these be interpreted in a way that doesn't bring stress and um, unnecessary concern? So I guess what I'm trying to ask is, when are those levels at a place where, you know, you do think, look, I think this is something we do need to consider pretty soon for egg freezing? Yeah, I think you, you need to combine that again with the patient's age. So, yeah. um, and what their social situation is like. Yeah. So, um, for example, I had a patient, uh, yeah, the AMH is, is not going to tell you what your chances are of conceiving per month. That always goes back to your age. Yeah. So if a woman comes to me with her partner and she's like, my AMH is five. Have you started trying yet? No. Okay. Well, well let's ignore the AMH. Um, but let's look at your age because your age is going to tell me uh, how quickly you will get pregnant. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I had a patient who came to see me in her mid to, early, mid to late 30s, really low AMH, mm. uh, wanted to do egg freezing. Okay. Uh, we put her through an egg freeze cycle, but I cancelled the cycle because she had hardly any follicles coming through. Okay. Hey. Mind you, before that point, she had had something like 13 to 14 terminations of pregnancy. Uh-huh. She clearly had no issues falling pregnant. Okay. Okay. But when she made the decision that she wanted to be more proactive with things, things were different to what she expected. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we put her through a cycle. I cancelled because I didn't think she was appropriate for egg collection because of one or two follicles. And she went away and had sex with a mate and got pregnant, had a kid. Oh, wow. And then came back and saw me a few years later, wanting a second child. We used a sperm donor. Okay. Um, we did IUI part of stim IUI so I gave her low dose hormones didn't do IVF just stim IUI she got pregnant had a second kid amazing okay um and her AMH was super low Mm. now you explain to me how has this woman fallen pregnant twice with uh you know um assisted therapy not IVF yeah um and had had 13 14 terminations prior so I tell people that AMH story a lot Mm, because yeah. um you know it, 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 she clearly had no issues with conception yeah and I, um but yeah that that it was very good to know the amh because it was help helpful in in telling in advising her that you know with this low amh it's unlikely we're going to get a lot of eggs yeah and um we may have to cancel your cycle which is what happened yeah of course that's where i amh is also very useful yeah um it, it helps you to to kind of counsel the patient and let them know what things may actually look like. Similarly to if someone has a a high AMH, a very high AMH, they are more likely to overstimulate, more likely to have OHS, more likely to have a a cycle that's a freeze all. Yes. Um, You know, so it's, um, it can be a clinical conundrum, but Mm. overall it's uh, it just needs a bit of explanation that's all yeah, it does yes, and it has its place yeah, yeah. yeah it does yeah. but when we talk about you know egg quantity um or well we promote egg quality over egg quantity now you know what do you think you can do to best support the quality of your eggs 
Uh, going back to what we dis discussed initially, which is preconception care. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because do you think for that woman uh, that you were talking about before, that her egg quality would have been am amazing rather than the quantity of eggs that she had? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I, I think she was a smoker as well. Um, oh, we, really? <laughs> yeah. we got her, we got her, we got her off the smokes. That's good. For, uh, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, smoking's definitely not good for your egg quality, and neither is secondhand smoke. And uh, and we know that there was a big study that came out of came out of China that showed that men who smoke when they uh, conceive a child hmm. that that child is more likely to have childhood cancers like lymphomas and leukemias makes sense um, yeah, the blood yeah. disorders yeah yeah, yeah. so yes that's the thing if you can't do it for you do it for your unborn child yeah that's right yeah yeah so look in terms of supplements yeah i i i think supplements definitely have a role and um i always go back to folate you know at one point in time the, the the scientist or doctor whoever it was who who actually put two and two together regarding folate and neural tube defects he, he was laughed at mm. um, until it then became mainstream medicine that vitamin you know b9 is super important but it's not just b9 now we know so much we know choline b3 yeah. um all of these other uh you know micronutrients are so important so you can't see a woman who's a vegetarian or a vegan, mm. for example, who you cannot look at and address all this stuff and often supplement. Yes. You know, yeah. iron, iron, you know, low ferritin. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. Disturb ovulation. It can, it's associated with a reduction in, in pregnancy rates and increasing miscarriage rates. So supplementation with a purpose yeah. is so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I think that's what people need to, to, to consider. You know, okay. often people will say things like, oh, you know, you'll, you'll read a doctor saying, oh, you know, if you take supplements, it's like, you know, you're throwing your, your money down the, the drain. That's complete bullshit as far as I see it um, because absolutely micronutrients play a vital role. Oh, 100%. And if a patient is deficient before trying to conceive, imagine what their pregnancy is going to be like. And also there are exactly. some nutrients that our soil is deficient in yeah. that we need to support with supplements yeah. and good quality supplements too. Yeah, definitely. And depending on the individual and their diet, like we're saying with a vegan, is that, you know, usually there is going to be some more supplementation that they're going to need. That's right. Especially the, especially vegans. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's not us being anti-vegan. It's just no, us knowing. No, definitely for the vegans. It's just, and, you know, there's options like algae oil instead of fish oil now, which is great. Right. But it is. It's one of those yeah. things you really need to take into consideration. And, if you know, if their cycle has changed, which a lot of vegans, you know, they do come in here before their journey of trying to conceive begins. And it's great because we get them at that stage where we get to support and build their cycle and, and move that perspective of that emphasis of, okay, we need to supplement your diet with micronutrients because you're not getting that from your own yeah yeah from your own food um so i guess you've really touched on this with that preconception care with freezing your eggs but 
we, it's a point and a message we really like to get across in clinic Tash is when best preparing for your body fair, freezing your eggs, seeing it almost like you are trying to conceive or going for an IVF cycle in the way of giving yourself that 90 to 120 days if you have it, which, you know, now we know that you do, Yeah, is that giving yourself that time for preconception care for a better outcome from that egg freezing. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. It's yeah. just trying to move that perspective because a lot of the time, you know, patients may go to a clinic and they say, "Look, we can do the egg freezing next month." Yeah. And you know, patients go, "Look, why not? Let's get it done." Yeah. Yeah, that's but right. It is. It's that emphasis of really trying to support their body because that is that's their future children, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, we know that women who have been on long-term contraceptives like the combined oral contraceptive pill are more likely to be deficient in things like zinc yeah and zinc is very important for um egg activation uh when it's injected with sperm yeah it comes into play with sperm so um you know getting their zinc levels up is vital checking those zinc levels but also putting them on a a zinc supplement um for a few months is what i routinely do Yeah. yeah i don't i don't usually go from um, getting them off the pill to going straight into a cycle no um, for that reason yeah yeah because um, yeah, it's you- about trying to prepare themselves as you said for um an, an egg collection that uh you know could eventuate into a baby you know whether it's now or later yeah years. do you usually recommend a prenatal to a, a patient who is going to go through egg freezing yeah, always. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. That's how I, because as, as you said, I just treat them like they're going to go off and have a baby now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. So, Dr. Tash, it's if kind of good, good training wheels for them so for when the dot time does come, you know, to yeah. actually. I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah they've been through it. Oh, I've been through it. Yeah, it is a multi. Yeah, you know, five years ago, I did froze my eggs. I underwent preparation for that. Yeah. I now know what to do now. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I think there are many benefits to that approach. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Tash, if a woman comes to see you and she's like, hey, I want to do, uh, I want to freeze my eggs, what does this mm-hmm. process look like? So obviously you spent time going through the preconception stuff with her. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what what happens with an with an egg retrieve cycle, it's pretty much just like going through an IVF cycle. Yeah. Um, you would generally have to uh, do a pelvic ultrasound uh, to assess the ovaries, access to ovaries. Um, you've done your AMH test. We still need to do preconception screening in that she needs to have her. Uh, infection status known so hep b c h i v syphilis but i do everything i do thalassemia screening I tr- again i treat them like they're going to have a baby yeah. um you know I, I look at varicella if they haven't had a varicella um immun- immunity then i'll get them to go and, and do that at some point same with rubella yeah. uh so um you know getting them off the smokes would be an important one minimizing alcohol uh optimizing their diet everything so once that that's all done um, the process is pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, generally, the 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 the, um, the woman has to sign up to a fertility clinic, usually associated with the doctor they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I'm with City Fertility, and what happens with, at City Fertility is uh, the patient, after I've done a treatment plan, will have an interview with the nurses there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nurses run through the treatment plan with the patient. They explain to the patient how to give the injections and all of that. 
mm. what to expect, where to go for monitoring, etc. Um, there are different protocols that we use for egg freezing, but generally um, I use the, the long, the, um, the short cycle, the antagonist cycle, okay. uh, which is more patient friendly and um, allows you to minimize the risk of OHSS because you can give a certain drug a trigger for that. Yeah. Um, so um, injections usually, usually start um, around day two of the menstrual cycle yeah. and they go for about nine, 10 days. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point women need to be on two injections uh one to stimulate the ovaries and the other to suppress the follicles from ovulating or popping um and yeah they still need a couple of bloods and scans usually done in the morning um you know throughout that that cycle uh then she'll have two days notice as to when her egg collection will be um and in terms of the egg collection um i always use an anaesthetist uh who you know sedates the patient other doctors don't use an anaesthetist they give the drugs themselves or they use what we call the green whistle a few of my colleagues use the green whistle or penthrox which can work quite nicely apparently but i like having my anaesthetist there and then um they'll go into the fertility clinic now at the moment patients all need a covid test prior to doing that we're still doing egg freezing with covid um and once they've they've gone in for their egg collection, the process takes about 15 to 20 minutes and um, they stay in the clinic for two hours and then go home. Um, and we generally advise that they don't uh, work the day of the egg collection and the day after. Some people do, they try and sneak some work the next day. Uh, but I, I just say to them, look, you've had an anesthetic, it might knock you around. But, you know, not everyone does an egg collection all the time, just take it easy. Um, yeah, and then... Obviously, they, they get notified about their, their egg numbers before they leave the clinic. Um, and then at some point, we, we discuss whether or not they want to proceed with a second or a third. Most patients go to second or third cycles to try and accumulate at least 20 to 30 mature eggs for freezing. 20 to 30. Okay. Yep. So um, you- and again, you know, you might get... Uh, you know, I, I have one patient the other day who's only done two cycles and she had 30 eggs easily from those two cycles. So she's not going to do any more egg freezing. Okay. Yeah, right. uh, she's in her late 30s and she has a partner. So, um, you know, every patient is different. I've had patients where they've gone through it once, they've collected 10 eggs. They're like, nah, Tash, I think I'm good. I'm going to just stop, stop at 10. That was once for me is enough. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then other women have a number in their head. They will, they'll be fixated on, you know, 40 eggs. Mm. And you'll say, okay, we can work safely towards that. Okay. You know, but if you're, if you're, if a woman has that number in mind, you've got to be realistic about things. So for example, if you do an egg collection and each time you only get five eggs, I mean, are you really going to do that many cycles to get 40? No. Um, I've never done that, you know, and then you, you've got to, talk to her about what that means each time she has a low return yeah but 20 20 to 30 is the sweet spot yeah 20 to 30 and so what would be your ideal expectation from each cycle are you looking at 20 to 30 say for example over two to three cycles or would you correct in total in total in total yeah i i don't i don't like getting that many eggs from just one cycle because that is really uh you know stimmy over stimulated so the sweet spot is eight to 15 eggs per egg retrieval. Yeah. Um, and of course, that goes back to quality. You want mature eggs. You don't want immature eggs. So yeah. sure, you might have 20 eggs, but what if 10 of them are immature? Yes. Yeah. Uh, some people freeze immature eggs uh, in the hope that one day we will have the technology to be able to make a baby from those immature eggs. Yeah, uh, right. Generally, most people just freeze mature. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
yes. Yeah, so you are wanting to balance getting mature eggs over getting a, a large number of eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quality over quantity, exactly. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. In terms of resources for patients, there's this great book called Eggs Unscrambled. Would you recommend that for any woman interested in egg freezing or looking at her options? Because I thought, felt that was quite informative, that book. Yeah, it was a good read. Yeah. Is it the pink cover with a girl in New York? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I found it annoying, that book. Oh, did you? It's a good book. Yeah, I, I have that in my rooms on the coffee table and I, I tell my patients about it. Yeah, it's so, a good perspective, but I, I also send them other things. Um, I would I find that there's not that many resources out there to give to patients. Yeah. So what would you recommend? I, um, I send patients an article through uh, Reproductive Biomedicine Online, so I like to send them medical um, articles. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll send them that medical article and I'll, I'll refer them to that book. Yeah, that's what I do. So, yeah, I think getting a balance of, 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 of information is important. But also a lot of women now have friends who've done it. And they know of people who've done it and more women are talking about it. So uh, just even speaking to people about it is an important thing. But also having, you know, written written resources is important yeah definitely and knowing the expectation of eggs because you find that a lot of patients come back from getting an egg retrieval to freeze their eggs and they're really disappointed when it's under 10 and yeah 10 is a wonderful it's great wonderful yeah. outcome you know so yeah it's um it's interesting so I guess yeah Tash, um, when we talk about the role of integrative medicine and, you know, we find this work so well when we get to work with you with patients, um, how do you find working with allied health practitioners in an integrative medicine setting and how does this support a patient's fertility journey and their outcomes? So what differences do you notice? Well, I think it's about patient experience. So, and um, it's a bit, I know this sounds, it might be a bizarre analogy, but uh and I'm not, you know, I really like to the Commonwealth Bank app, right? I don't like doing banking. I don't like money. I don't like any of that. But I like, I love the Commonwealth Bank app compared to some other apps that I've used for other banks. Okay. What do you like? The, the user experience is completely different. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it makes me kind of go, oh, you know, I really like using this app. It's going to maybe change my, um, my, philosophy on money and whatever hmm. um, and I think the same goes with fertility treatment so if someone's going through an IVF cycle it can be really quite traumatic for some people yes yeah. um, whether they have it at, you know under one doctor or one type of unit hmm. but I find um, when naturopaths Chinese medicine practitioners acupuncturists energy healers um, pelvic floor physios uh, also work together with me for the, the for that patient that they they feel more uh you know cared for uh they're uh, more likely to kind of hang in there they're yeah. more likely to keep trying um you know they, they might find their, their tenacity levels will go up because they've got more support mm -hmm. um and you know they'll get different opinions which sometimes can be confusing for some patients but I think overall uh, more reassuring for them yeah so for example um you know if I send to an acupuncturist 
uh, you you probably know this, but the, the, but it's acupuncture is considered an add-on in IVF treatment, and there's been like a lot of you know ICSI is an add-on. Um, yeah. There's lots of things that are considered add-ons, mm -hmm. and the criticism is that well, there's no fantastic evidence that acupuncture works. No. Um, not to my understanding, there's no knowledge that um, it it, is, it causes harm. But what I do know is that it can help patients really relax yeah. um, and uh, feel more grounded uh, and, and they like it for other reasons. So when we're doing IVF, it's not just about getting a patient pregnant. It's about how is that patient cared for through the process? Yeah. You know, what's that, what's that, what's that person's um, experience of that in, you know, 10 years, in, in 10 years time, how are they going to look back at that experience? You know, yeah. um, because the reality of it is, yeah. a lot of patients won't conceive with IVF treatment um, because IVF is not one hundred percent. But yeah. in that time when they're going through it, how can we make it better for them? Yeah, and exactly. I think that's where the complementary medicine side of things is. Oh, it plays such a big role for 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 women. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I've certainly learnt a lot from. Uh, allied health practitioners and complementary uh, medicine um, therapists yeah. um, and I feel that as a doctor I'm being a bit more uh, whole in the way I work with patients and hey you know I've had patients that did not want to see me because either the fact that I refer to acupuncturists and Chinese medicine practitioners and other you know allied health that okay. they, they just want to see a doctor who just works with a Western model and that's it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I will attract uh, women who want to work with allied health. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Chinese medicine practitioners. And at the end of the day, I enjoy it more. They enjoy it more when we're on the same page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course. And, you, you know, both of you having the same mindsets going to help or like the same outcome really. And at the end of the day, if they need a practitioner or a doctor who's going to look after them as an individual and not just, repeated IVF cycles, then that's who you really want to be looked after by. Yeah. From my opinion. And yeah. And that's why we yeah. always like to refer to you because we know that you do promote allied health and you're like, you support acupuncture and the benefits of acupuncture. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many patients have told me they, they've just, they just love acupuncture. They just love the, the feeling they get when they've had it. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and and, and that for me is a big win. It, yeah, um, exactly. You know, should they speak naturally or with IVF? And often as part of preconception care, when people are preparing for pregnancy, I, I do make recommendations there for acupuncture um, or naturopathy. Yeah. You know, naturopaths are kind of refining the supplements, but acupuncture is really good if a woman's cycle, she's not really where, sure where her cycle is, hmm. not really sure when she ovulates, wants to kind of regulate her cycle a little bit more. And that's where Chinese medicine acupuncturist um, practitioner comes in really handy because you guys, you know, have the time to sit with them, um, to go through all of those things, uh, you know, the, the temperature charts, all of that, that the Western doctor like me does not have time for. Yeah. Yeah, and looking, you know, looking at their fertility from a different perspective as well, and looking after them as we we're saying as an individual and and as a whole. And you know, over the years, I hope that the randomized controlled trials do become more positive with the acupuncture side of things. But 
I think, you know, we do see that the dose of acupuncture is so important with yeah. IVF and how we can support them before the IVF cycle. And that's where we come back into that preconception side of things as well. And the so, cum- cumulative effect yeah. of acupuncture rather than just a one-off treatment. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I think that's definitely what the research shows us is that, you know, just coming for acupuncture prior and post to transfer within the 24 to 48 hours isn't enough. Yeah. And I think that's really good that that has come out because it, it, we have seen now the different trials that are showing us that, you know, if you do come for acupuncture for a longer time and that accumulative dose yeah. that we are seeing better outcomes with IVF. So yeah, yeah. it's great. It's exciting. Yeah. It's an exciting time to see how complementary medicine can support the IVF cycles and the women as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose for you as practitioners also, it must, it must be a lot nicer for you to um, spend more time with people um, over the months rather than a couple of days. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And, you know, that also gives us the time to, if we need to, is, you know, bring in Chinese herbs if they're off a cycle as well, which is mm. supportive because, you know, we have seen that there's some studies that show that unexplained fertility, infertility had a um, conception rate of over 60.9% when treated with acupuncture and herbal medicine, which mm-hmm. obviously, like, we can't use the herbal medicine when a patient's going through an IVF cycle, but if they are taking a break, then that means we can really come in there and support. Yeah, but even like, um, you know, after an IVF cycle, when women have had really high estradiol levels and then their poor livers are being flogged because yeah. their livers have metabolize the estrogen you know it has to get through their bowels you know the last thing you want is for a woman to have an IVF cycle and get constipated after that because you know what's going to happen with her estrogen metabolism breakdown so I think that's where what you ladies do is also vital because you help the body you you know you really support the liver um, in in all of that and um, I don't think people realize that you know and, and and certainly if a woman has ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome you routinely run some blood tests and when you do you usually run liver function tests and those liver function tests those transaminase levels are always elevated and the reason is why because the liver's working harder yeah yeah we would be more um accepting of that that you know how can we support the liver now that we've done this yeah not just about the eggs. No, it's about the women as a whole. That's right. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Tash, thank you so much for your time today. It's been unreal chatting to you. Yeah, thank you. No worries. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on and thanks for doing all the good work that you do. You oh, too, Tash. You too, Tash. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye.